Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. There was this great quote in the old days saying, I'm not a member of any organized party, I'm a Democrat. Um, and we we pride ourselves on being the big tent. But turns out, Amy, that being a big tent's hard, right? Because there's people in the tent who say things you don't agree with. That's... Jim Messina, I'm the former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and Campaign Manager to President Barack Obama. And that tension Jim is referring to there? Well, it's been front and center for Democrats all week after freshman Democratic Congresswoman Elon Omar said this. I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA, of fossil fuel industries, or big pharma, and not talk about a powerful lobbying that is influencing policy? Congresswoman Omar is referring to Israel there, and her comments were interpreted by many as anti-Semitic. These days, Jim Messina is mostly working on international campaigns, but he sees a parallel between what's happening in the United States Congress and what's happening in the Labour Party in the UK. Where Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, has refused to condemn vitriolically anti-Semitic remarks. And there's a big war going on in his own party about this. Uh, And so, you know, these are going to happen. I think what Democrats have to do is remember that we are the big tent and you know, picking a fight with ethnic groups, any ethnic groups, is not the right thing to do. And when people do that in our party or out of our party, we should call it what it is, which is wrong and ridiculous. Of course, not everybody sees it that way. The minute two Muslim women arrive in Congress, they're going to get attacked as anti-Semitic if they're critical of Israel, which they are. Many Democrats are also frustrated that instead of spending this week promoting their signature anti-corruption and voting rights bill, H.R. 1, they've spent it debating anti-Semitism within their own ranks. Others are frustrated by what they think is a news media obsessed with finding and exploiting any divisions within their caucus to drive clicks and eyeballs. The denouement to this saga came on Thursday afternoon. A resolution that condemned hate against many groups, including Jews and Muslims, was brought to the floor. I stand as a very strong supporter of Israel. Hatred for the children of Israel is a very special kind of hatred that should never be watered down. Words matter. For generations, they have had dangerous consequences for me, for my family, and for my people. Every Democrat and all but 23 Republicans voted in support of it. Helping us understand how we got to this point and where it goes from here is The New York Times' Cheryl Gay Stolberg. In 2012, Ilhan Omar, who was not yet a congresswoman, uh, issued a tweet in which she said Israel had hypnotized the world with its evil doings. By the time she was running for Congress in 2018, this became a huge issue. And she wouldn't back down, but eventually, when she got to Washington, she was forced to apologize. But the comments about Israel didn't stop, and shortly after that, put out another tweet in which she said support for Israel was, quote, all about the Benjamins baby. Uh, That was a reference to $100 bills, and many Jewish lawmakers took this as 
an insinuation that Jews are motivated by money, kind of an ancient, uh, you know, centuries-old anti-Semitic trope. She was forced to apologize for that. Democratic leaders came down on her pretty hard. And Republicans put a resolution on the floor condemning anti-Semitism. And they kind of dared Democrats to vote for it. Since it was a Republican resolution, Republicans don't usually control the floor, but it was a procedural move. And Democrats went for it. They did vote to condemn anti-Semitism. This was about two weeks ago. Then... Last week, Ms. Omar was at a progressive town hall at a local uh, bookstore and restaurant here, and she tried to explain her early remark by saying that she didn't like the idea that people were pushing lawmakers to pledge allegiance to a foreign country. That was, in essence, uh, a dual loyalty charge. Dual loyalty is a, also a centuries-old anti-Semitic trope that suggests Jews are more loyal to Israel or to uh, their faith than they are to their home country. And over the weekend, some veteran Jewish lawmakers were just outraged by this. So they got together and they started talking to Steny Hoyer, the House Democratic leader, and they started pushing for a resolution to condemn anti-Semitism. They wanted this to be on Democrats' own terms. By the time they got to Washington this week and Congress got you know, back to business, there was an uproar within the Democratic Party. Many members of the Progressive Caucus, which Ilhan is a member of, complained that she was being unfairly treated. She is one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. She's also been the target of Islamophobic attacks herself, and they really pushed back hard. And so did members of the Congressional Black Caucus, who said, look, we've been living with racism for hundreds of years. There are black men, you know, getting shot on the streets of major cities by police, and no one issues a resolution. Mm -hmm. President Trump is, you know, saying, you know, making inflammatory, racially tinged remarks all the time and no one issues a resolution, why are we issuing a resolution about one freshman Democrat from Minnesota? And why is it only about anti-Semitism? If we're going to condemn hate, let's do it in a big way. So there was a hurried effort to kind of broker a deal between all these factions within the Democratic Party. And that's how we wound up with this far-reaching resolution condemning all forms of bigotry. And at the end of the day, every Democrat ended up voting in support of it. Every Democrat did, including Ilhan Omar. It seems, though, as with so many things, that when you try to make everybody feel okay, you made everybody feel bad, right? So nobody's happy. That, that's pretty much right. So a number of the Jewish lawmakers, what I would call the old guard, veteran Jewish lawmakers like Elliot Engel, who's chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Ted Deutsch, who uh, runs the subcommittee that oversees foreign affairs, were not happy with this resolution. They wanted a resolution that singularly condemned anti-Semitism. Other people were okay with it. Um, progressives felt like maybe they had done a good thing and condemned, you know, and making a statement of values. 
Ms. Omar issued a, com- a statement afterwards in which she said it was a historic day because the House had for the first time condemned anti-Muslim bigotry. But I think on the whole, Democrats probably felt like they should never have gone down this road in the first place. And all it did was distract from their agenda. What does this tell us about the Democratic caucus and Speaker Pelosi's ability to sort of keep them unified as we go forward? Well, it certainly was not Speaker Pelosi's greatest move. (laughs) You know, she has had a pretty good rollout, a very good rollout, I would say, after the shutdown where she really bested President Trump. She came out looking very good. But as Democrats have managed their agenda, there have been a lot of these distractions. And this really stepped on their big agenda item, their kind of signature issue of democracy reform. So I think it raises questions about how well Speaker Pelosi is doing in managing the disparate factions of her caucus and whether she can avoid this kind of thing in the future. Right. So what what happens now? I mean, is is the suggestion that should another member, whether it's Omar or others who say or tweet something, that they are treated a certain way, that they are maybe stripped of committee assignments? Like, has a standard been set, do you think, Cheryl? Or is that still fluid? You know, I think that is the big unknown. What happens... If this happens again, what happens, let's say, if Ilhan Omar does say something else that offends Jewish lawmakers? And I asked this question of a Democratic member of Congress, not a member of leadership, but somebody who was very involved in drafting this resolution and in kind of brokering the deal for the all-inclusive resolution. And the answer came back, hmm, with a long silence. (laughs) I think they don't really know. I think she's kind of been put on notice, but I also think that there's a real danger in policing speech. And we saw this at the very beginning of the session when the other Muslim woman in Congress, Rashida Tlaib, used an expletive to describe President Trump. And, you know, Republicans went wild and Speaker Pelosi was asked about this. And she said, look, I'm not, you know, I'm not in the business of policing speech. And I asked her, what are the dangers of policing speech? And she said, look, this isn't about policing speech. It's about a statement of our values. And if you want to police speech, let's talk about the guy in the White House. That's a long way of saying, I'm not sure anybody knows what happens after this. And what does it say, too, about the divide among Democrats on the issue of Israel and how significant this is or may continue to become over time? Here's what I think is really interesting. At first, I thought this was really about a divide over Israel. And in some way, it is because the progressive left, including many young Jews, are very critical of the Netanyahu government, and Ilhan Omar and also Rashida Tlaib are a reflection of that. But on Capitol Hill, they are really loners. Uh, There is overwhelming support within the Democratic caucus for Israel, if not for the policies of the Netanyahu government. And a member of Congress said to me yesterday that 
debate about Israel is well within bounds, but what he objected to was that Ilhan Omar was questioning the motives of supporters of Israel. And that's a different thing. He said, look, she's talking about us. She's not talking about Israel. If she wants to talk about Israel and its policies, that's fine. But she shouldn't question the motives of the people who back Israel. Have you ever seen a time where freshman Democrats, we have Omar, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Tlaib sort of defining the Democratic agenda as well as defining the 2020 race in such a significant way? No, I think they've really taken Washington and the country by storm. And in part, I think that's because of social media. They have huge social media followings. Um, But in part, it's because we had this historic wave of women, women of color, uh, elected. And I think in the Trump era, um, maybe Democrats were really ready and hungry for that kind of diversity. And uh, they're smart and they're savvy and they know how to make news. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, thanks for coming on and joining me. Thank you, Amy. It's more than just freshmen in the House of Representatives challenging U.S. support for Israel. Five Democratic senators who were either officially running or considering running for president, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Bernie Sanders, voted against a bill that included an anti-BDS provision last month. This provision allows state and local governments to refuse to do business with companies that support boycotting, divesting, or sanctioning Israel, BDS. I asked Nahal Tusi, a foreign affairs reporter at Politico, why she thinks that the Democratic Party seems to be suddenly becoming more critical of Israel. A number of things happen. First of all, the Israeli government has become much more right-wing and much more willing to align itself with the Republican Party. During Barack Obama's presidency, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was, in the estimation of many Democrats, disrespectful to Obama, even though Obama put together an extraordinary $40 billion arms deal for Israel. There was a sense that the government there was simply not grateful in any way to the United States under Obama. So this became like Netanyahu just became more and more aligned with the Republicans. And he actually did everything he could to undermine Obama on the Iran nuclear deal, including giving a speech to Congress without notifying the administration ahead of time and getting you know any sort of blessing from them. And it was a speech that basically was anti-Obama and anti-nuclear deal. And that really, really upset a lot of Democrats, including, I should add, African-American Democrats who really felt like there was something else going on and that they just did not want to see Obama disrespected this way. Then you have Trump, right? He comes in and he has adopted policies that critics say basically take away any semblance of U.S. neutrality on the issue of Middle East peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He has moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, for example. He has cut off aid to the Palestinians. He has taken so many steps that are anti-Palestinian that the Democrats have become extremely alarmed, and they feel like the very concept of the two-state solution, which has been U.S. policy for so long, is at stake. And so they feel like they have to do something to 
write the situation back to what it used to be. In a way, a lot of Democrats who, you know, would have in the past said, well, we're very leftist on this now say, look, actually, we're the moderates because the Republicans, thanks to Trump, have gone so far to the right. And how much does generational divide play into this? Younger members and and older members? That's that's a huge, huge part of it. I mean, we're talking about a younger generation that perhaps does not remember, isn't as scarred by what happened in World War II, the Holocaust, these sorts of things. They don't have the kind of residence that they once did. Furthermore, you know, there's a lot of frustration with the plight of the Palestinians. It's been, what, 70 years? And the Palestinian side of things has become much more active, much more organized, and much more able to connect with younger people in this country, including, I should add, a lot of younger Jewish people who feel like Israel is not living up to the standards that it should be living up to when it comes to the treatment of the Palestinians. So absolutely, that's a factor as well. So what's the risk then for a Democrat running in 2020, or what's the bigger risk, that they look too close to Israel and are not supportive enough of the anti-BDS movement, or that they're out of touch with the Palestinians and the plight uh, of people there and the concerns of a generation of younger Americans who say, you know, our policy in supporting Israel is really out of touch with what's really happening on the ground. I think all of those things are concerns for Democrats who are running, especially ones who have for so long styled themselves as progressives, Bernie Sanders being a good example. Elizabeth Warren is another one who, you know, she's a progressive and she's trying to find her footing on this. A lot of them want to bring it back to this very idea of like, look, we need to put things back in the paradigm to which we, the United States, are someone who can help shepherd in a two-state solution. That should be what we should be going back toward. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't know that the Democratic primary is going to be decided on this particular issue. And there are people working behind the scenes to try to find compromises so that the Democrats don't ultimately hurt themselves in the general election against presumably President Trump, who will try to paint them as anti-Israel. Do you think that the the president or Republicans overall can really exploit the Democrats on this issue politically? Do you think there are enough voters out there who maybe have aligned themselves with Democrats for years who would split with the party over this issue? It's very difficult to tell. I mean, you have very vocal uh, folks in the Jewish community who are very, very pro-Israel, very conservative. But, you know, polls have shown that most American Jews lean Democratic. And then at the end of the day, how big is that vote? Where are they based? Then there's the issue of donors and funding. Um, You know, certain organizations who support Israel have a lot of sway when it comes to getting people to donate to certain candidates. So that could be a factor that Democrats consider as well. It's pretty unusual for foreign policy or a particular foreign policy issue to be a decisive factor. But when you're talking about you know, a race where so many different things are in play after years of what's going to be just the most insane news environment we've had in so long. Anything could be a tipping point. I'm wondering how the different presidential candidates have responded to the Representative Omar controversy thus far. Well, so far, she's gotten a fair amount of support. If Bernie Sanders has said, you have to look at this in the bigger context of 
bigotry and that sort of thing. It's really, really been interesting because it originally it seemed like, wow, you know, she has really alienated herself. But then as the days have gone by, a number of folks, including some presidential candidates, have said, look, this isn't just about anti-Semitism. It's also about Islamophobia. It's also about hatred against minorities. And they're trying to use it as an opportunity to stand against bigotry in general. Do you think they felt a pressure to have to weigh in on this issue? Yeah. I mean, I think right now, like anything that happens, (laughs) they're (laughs) feeling pressure to weigh in on. I mean, I've been trying to pressure them to weigh in on everything from, you know, the U.S. policy in Afghanistan to other things. But frankly, it's still kind of early in the day. Some of these people haven't declared yet. Some of them are still trying to figure out their positions on some of these extremely complicated issues. And then, you know, they'll give you statements that like try to square every circle and dot every I and take every stand. And you're like, at the end of the day, like you're like, I don't even know what you believe. But, you know, at this point, that's part of the game, right, is trying to be deliberately vague to some extent and make everyone happy. Nahal Tusi, really great to talk to you. Thank you. Nahal Tusi is a foreign affairs reporter at Politico. It's not just the Democratic Party that's divided over what U.S. policy toward Israel should be. Many families are, too, especially Jewish families, where there can be a generational divide. We talked to a lot of people about this. Not many wanted to be on the radio, understandably so. It's a fraught and personal topic. But here's one take from Alyssa Rubin, an activist with If Not Now, an American Jewish organization that opposes Israeli government control of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. She says her politics are quite different from her grandfather's. My grandpa was a teenager during World War II. My whole life, he's told me stories of European Jews who were turned away at the U.S. border and first to return to Europe, where they perished in the Holocaust. He always said if Israel had existed then, then they would have had somewhere to go. After Trump was elected, I asked him if he was afraid. He said, no, at least now if something happens, we will have somewhere to go. It won't be like 1939. For most of my life, anti-Semitism was only a thing my grandpa talked about in the past tense. It wasn't until the 2016 election that I saw anti-Semitism rear its head in a way that reminded me of the stories that my grandpa had told about his childhood. The difference between us, though, is that my grandpa sees American Jewish support for the occupation in Israel as necessary for our survival, and I see it as a crisis, and our support for it is the biggest threat to our survival. We also spoke to both a mother and daughter about how they influenced each other's views on Israel. They did not want to be named. Here's the daughter. I didn't grow up in a pro-Israel household, though I wouldn't say that the issue of Palestine was of primary importance. As I entered into my undergraduate studies, I made the decision to study Arabic, and I learned more about the region, about its history, about its culture, and I would say that Palestine became something I cared deeply about and that has shaped my life and the decisions that I make. I would say that this is one of the reasons why I've had a lot of trouble supporting Democrat candidates in the past, um, is that I don't feel that that these views are reflected in their statements, in their policies. Here's her mother. I grew up in a very, very Zionist family that supported Israel, you know, at all costs. But um, I split with my parents when I was quite young. It was a big big conflict with them because I've never been a big supporter of Israel. But my, I think my sensitivity to the real oppression and brutality toward the Palestinians has increased dramatically with my daughter's 
kind of immersion in the culture and her uh, studying in Palestine. I think it's really important to support Democrats, and I understand that they have to say that Israel has a right to exist, and I agree with that. I just disagree very, very strongly with the kind of apartheid that's going on in Israeli policy right now. We also reached out to you, our listeners, the Democrats among you, and asked what you wanted to see from the Democratic Party when it comes to its policies toward Israel and Palestine. My name is Ken Ebert, and I'm from Boston Lake, New York. As a Democrat, I'm very concerned by what is happening right now in regards to the discourse about the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Overall, I personally would like to see a more balanced view, which includes a critical consideration of the U.S. role in the Middle East and an allowance for an even-handed dialogue. Palestine is not a country. Israel is a country and is on the front line of many of our battles in the world. So what do I think the U.S. policy should be to the only democracy in the Middle East? I think we should be friendly and supportive and make sure that Israel continues to survive the nonstop onslaught. Louis Orloff, Florida. Hi, my name is Liz Ritter. I'm calling from New York City. I'd like to see Israelis and Palestinian Arabs be treated with respect and with a homeland. You just heard a lot of different opinions, some diametrically opposed. Coming up, we talk about disagreement. The art of it, that is. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. So here's something I've been thinking about. Former Starbucks CEO and potential third-party candidate Howard Schultz wants us to... Talk honestly about our problems. And to... Debate them with civility, with respect, and optimism. Conservative columnist Arthur Brooks recently wrote in a New York Times opinion piece... The key to greater unity and more progress isn't actually to agree more or to disagree less. It's to disagree better. One of the easiest lines in politics is to attack Washington, D.C. and its dysfunction. If you're looking for an amen from those in the chattering class, make sure to write an op-ed where you make the case for finding common-sense solutions to our common problems. But the political challenge we face today isn't that we simply need to be more measured in our disagreements. It's that we disagree about the challenges and problems facing the country in the first place. It's impossible to talk about solutions if we don't agree on the same set of problems. Now, it hasn't always been this way. According to the Pew Research Center, 20 years ago, the top priorities of Democrats and Republicans were much more aligned than they are today. In 1999, improving the education system topped the list of priorities for both Republicans and Democrats, and four of the five top issues for Republicans were listed among the Democrats' top five issues as well. Gotta get it, yep, 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 yep. Boom, boom, boom. 
Ten years later, in the wake of the financial crisis, three issues, economy, jobs, and terrorism, topped the list among both Republicans and Democrats. Five years ago, the economy, the job situation, and Social Security all ranked among the top five issues in both parties. Today, there is not a single overlapping priority among the top five for Democrats and Republicans. Moreover, on some of these issues, the gap between how big a priority one party sees an issue and how important the other party sees that same issue is dramatic. For example, the Pew Report finds that two-thirds of Democrats identify global climate change as a top priority, while just 21 percent of Republicans say the same. That's almost a 50-point gap. In other words, it's not just that many Republicans believe that the Green New Deal is an inadequate or incorrect solution to environmental challenges facing the country. Instead, many don't see climate change as the pressing issue Democrats think it is. Many also think the issue is actually overblown or even a hoax. The border wall is another example. There is no easy solution to the issue of building a border wall when one side sees it's critical to keep America safe. And the other side views it as an immorality. That's not to say that finding political common ground is impossible. In fact, it's pretty easy. A political leader should identify the issues for which both sides have shown common concern and then lean into those. Pew found the smallest gaps in priorities between Democrats and Republicans on Social Security, jobs, drug addiction, and transportation. But guess what? Democrats didn't name a single one of those issues on their top five priority list. And Republicans mentioned just one, Social Security. And so we are back to square one. A Democratic candidate for president isn't going to generate a whole lot of enthusiasm if he or she isn't talking about any issue in the top five priority list. Even politicians who want to turn down the rhetorical heat, like a Joe Biden or a John Hickenlooper, are going to face the same kind of challenges that more combative candidates like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and President Trump face. The priorities they are focusing on are not the same priorities for the other side. In an interview with George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America, former Colorado Governor Hickenlooper boasted a record of bringing people together and getting things done. Hickenlooper said he'd go to the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office and find a way to get to common ground. Yet as we already can see in the data, what the issue is for McConnell and his caucus is likely to be fundamentally different from what the issue is for Democrats. Fundamentally, we don't agree on the direction and priorities for this country. The only thing that can change this dynamic is an existential threat to the country that almost all of us can agree upon. Sadly, that usually means something has gone very, very wrong. What are you thinking about this? You can tweet me at Amy E. Walter. And while you're on Twitter, make sure you're following the show at The Takeaway. This is Politics with Amy Walter. Is this person a citizen of the United States? Is this person a citizen of the United States? Is this person a citizen of the United States? Is this person a citizen of the United States? That's a question the Trump administration wants on the 2020 census form. And it's a question that has triggered lawsuits by numerous states who view it as unconstitutional and discriminatory. California is one of those states, and on Wednesday, a district judge ruled in the state's favor. Judge Seaborg said it best in his ruling, quote, the inclusion of the citizenship question on the 2020 census threatens the very foundation 
of our democratic system. That's California's Secretary of State, Alex Padilla. He's been one of the most vocal opponents of the citizenship question in that state. I asked him what was at stake for California if the question was included. The data that comes from the census, what in the Constitution is required is a national population count. It's the census data that drives the reapportionment process, determining how many representatives each state gets in the House of Representatives. So at stake for California and other states is literally our fair representation in Congress. So a census that's not accurate, a census that's undermined, compromises fair representation in addition to well-deserved and necessary federal funding. So it's high stakes for us. It's the reason that despite this administration and the Department of Commerce and the Census Bureau itself being underfunded and understaffed, the census survey itself being under-tested going into uh, 2020, and now the threat of the citizenship question that the state of California has put in our own state budget uh, $90 million for early preparation and outreach planning so that we can reach all communities in the state about the importance of all people participating in the census. What the Commerce Department was arguing was, this is a question on here, but we're still going to count those people in our overall census. Right. Uh, But the addition of a citizenship question, in my opinion, is a thinly veiled attempt by the Trump administration to discourage those communities from participating so that those communities don't get the political representation that they are due nor the federal funding for infrastructure, for health care, for education, for anything else that they deserve. It's tough enough every 10 years to ensure everybody participating in the census. You know, we already have uh, what are considered hard to count communities, whether it's low income communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, especially. uh, But it's important that everybody be counted. Uh, You know, you mentioned the Department of Commerce here. Uh, We should not fall for the lie that this effort uh, emanated from the Department of Commerce. Uh, The citizen question was driven not by data, but rather by extremists like Steve Bannon and Chris Kobach uh, and their advice to President Trump. And that's what the court found in their ruling in California and in New York. Is that correct? Uh, exactly. The evidence is there. The email's there. The communications uh, trail uh, is there. Uh, and the leadership in the Department of Commerce has uh, basically lied to us in an attempt to justify the addition of the citizenship question. The other argument made by the Trump administration or others is that, look, what we're trying to do is prevent people who are not here in this country legally from voting. What do you say to that? Uh, To hear Trump claim that this is an effort to protect voting rights uh, would be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous. If you look at this administration's track record on voting rights, uh, you'll see they've done nothing but try to suppress the vote, whether it's the advancement of uh, voter ID laws or the purging of voter rolls or the uh, uh, briefly lived presidential advisory commission on election administration, which was supposed to try to root out voter fraud, uh, but was a fraud in and of itself. Uh, The fact of the matter is voter fraud is extremely rare in America. There's a lot of safeguards in place to uh, try to prevent voter fraud. And if anything, our democracy is better when more eligible people participate, not when they're discouraged from participating. 
Right. And that's an important distinction to make. This is not registering people to vote, correct? The census uh, is about getting a count of all the people who live in the United States. Exactly. Look, you couldn't be more clear. It is written into our United States Constitution. Every 10 years, there shall be a national population count. The issue of communities of color, immigrant communities, and their their drop-off or uh, maybe hesitancy in participating in the process. Have you seen evidence of that in terms of people registering to vote, folks who are eligible to vote, who are not willing to do so or to come out to vote, who aren't willing to do so for fear that it might expose family members or other friends they know who are not here legally? I think uh, California, we've worked hard to be the counterexample of a lot of the voter suppression policies you've seen take root in so many states across the country. Uh, California is working hard not just to maintain the security and integrity of our elections, but to frankly make it easier for eligible citizens to register to vote, to make it easier for all registered voters to be able to cast their ballot and ensure that their votes are counted and counted as cast. Uh, I'm proud the Californians have uh, stepped up uh, and pushed back by registering in record numbers uh, and voting in record numbers. We had the highest turnout this last November uh, of any midterm election going back to 1982. And our registration rolls continue to surge as we are quickly approaching the 2020 election. And that includes uh, voters of color. Uh, yes, the biggest growths in uh, uh, both the voter registration uh, as well as voter turnout has been from the historically lower participating communities, whether it's communities of color, young people, uh, and um, uh, low-income families as well. And what is your expectation for what the Supreme Court does? Uh, in this case, it's uh, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court too, has become uh, partisan. And we know the balance uh, of the Supreme Court right now. Uh, so I'm uh, uh, concerned about what their ruling will likely be, but uh, have to remain optimistic that these rulings in the lower courts uh, will uh, be will, will make our case stronger when this gets to the Supreme Court. And I think yesterday's ruling on the fundamental constitutionality of the citizenship question on the census is a big help. Secretary Padilla, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I want to play back something that California Secretary of State Alex Padilla told me. It's the census data that drives the reapportionment process, determining how many representatives each state gets in the House of Representatives. So at stake for California and other states is literally our fair representation in Congress. Reapportionment. All right, it's a wonky-sounding word, but it is critically important to states, especially those set to lose or gain. Dave Wasserman is a colleague of mine at the Cook Political Report, where he serves as the U.S. House editor. And he explained what reapportionment actually means. A lot of people are confused by the difference between reapportionment and redistricting. But reapportionment is usually a fairly straightforward process of allocating seats to states, followed by the very messy process of partisans brawling over how the line mm -hmm. should be drawn. So in other words, you count all the people— Every state then has a total population, and from there you decide that this state should get X number of congressional districts based on how many people live there. Yeah. And then once you get 
the number of districts in your state, that's when redistricting happens. You have to decide what those lines look like. Exactly. So talk to us about states that are poised to gain or lose seats based on assumptions that are being made right now about the population growth or not in those states. The big winners in reapportionment uh, for the last several decades have been Texas and Florida, and that's going to remain true. Texas is on track to gain three seats. Florida is on track to gain two. And then the big loser has been New York. New York is on track to lose two seats. Other states that are possibly going to lose out, uh, Minnesota is on the bubble to lose one, Michigan, Alabama, and Illinois, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio look very likely to lose one. Rhode Island, which has had two members uh, since as long as anyone can remember, is likely to go down to just one seat. So there are states with, uh, with a lot on the line here. And the next thing that happens once we know the number of districts a state gets, then comes the messier process of actually drawing those lines, the redistricting piece. Do we think that the redistricting process is going to look, I don't know, maybe less partisan this time around? Well, the public consciousness surrounding redistricting, I think, is the biggest change since 2010. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly on the left, the common notion, and there is an element of truth to this, is that Republicans dominated the last round of redistricting, the point where they gained more control in state legislatures and more power in the U.S. House than they earned through the vote. Well, this heightened consciousness, I think, is going to make it more difficult for Republicans to be aggressive in gerrymandering maps in the states where they still do have control. But also, there are a lot of states where we'll have newly split balances between Democratic governors and Republican legislatures after Democrats picked up seven gubernatorial offices in 2018. And then there are several states where new commissions will be in place. And those states include Utah and Colorado and Michigan. So we'll likely see more courts draw maps than we did in 2010, Mm. which is an awkward position for courts to be in. But overall, the proportion of the House that will be elected through districts that are really aggressive partisan gerrymanders, I think, will go down significantly. Mm. When When you're looking and thinking about whether this citizenship question gets asked on this the census. What's your take on the implications of having that question on the census form? Well, most census experts and past directors agree that asking a citizenship question directly on the census form would have a chilling effect on response rates. Now, just how chilling an effect that would be is a matter of debate. But if there's any chance that it would affect the count or generate an undercount, in areas of the country with high non-citizen populations, then that would only stand to help Republicans because it would boost the proportion of total respondents and residents in higher citizenship Mm -hmm. areas, which tend to be whiter, more rural, and more Republican. So it could potentially affect the number of seats that states like California and Texas receive and reapportionment, but then it could also affect the lines being drawn within the states in a way that would potentially hurt 
democratic fortunes and representation for minority areas. Well, how does it affect then how the lines get drawn? After states are allocated seats, then the states use that redistricting data, that very detailed Mm. census data, to determine exactly how to draw the lines in a way that makes districts as equal as practicable down to the person. So that detailed data on who lives where determines very precisely who fits into which districts. So in other words, for districts that are heavily non-white or have a heavy non-citizen population, those are the districts that would get cut out, even though the state itself is losing one seat. They're not, nobody's telling line drawers to say, you have to cut out this area of the state if we're losing one seat. The way to think about it is if you have an undercount in a certain area, that district is going to need to be larger in order to be of the target size mm-hmm. under the state's population. So if you have an undercount, for example, in South Texas or in downtown LA, then those residents are going to have less representation than residents in a very high citizenship area say, somewhere in Northern California. Right, because you're going to have to pull in people from other parts of the surrounding area, so their district is going to be less concentrated in that area than it would be if they had a proper count. Right. And look, the census has ways of combating non-response rates, right? They will spend additional money to try and ensure that there's not a dramatic undercount. But The potential for an undercount is still real, and this also means the census would need to spend a whole lot more money trying to Mm -hmm. count residents. Which right now, it's unlikely that they're going to get. And that's exactly the focus of increased oversight of the census that Democrats are embarking on in Congress. Dave Wasserman, thank you for talking to us. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for having me. Dave Wasserman is the U.S. House editor at the Cook Political Report. We packed a lot into the show today. What struck me is how the debate over Israel is about more than Israel. It's about politicians being willing to engage in a debate that includes the terms and and but. Yes, Israel's a loyal ally in the Middle East and but it pursues policies that are controversial and contestable. What that requires is a desire to have this kind of debate. That can't happen when those in the political world are more interested in having the fight than having a debate. Look, I get it. A fight helps raise money. A fight helps exploit weaknesses on the other side. A fight simplifies the world into right and wrong, black and white. So we get to choose the fight or the conversation. And if you choose conversation, you have to be willing to sit in that uncomfortable place called nuance. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Next time on The Takeaway Podcast. Sport is designed to be a binary. We have boys and we have girls. We have men's, we have women's. For some high school students across the country, that no longer makes sense. 
people in the stands were saying, you know, come on, ladies, let's go, girls. And, you know, I knew that not everyone out on the ice that day was a girl. That is a constant battle for these kids. I'm Tanzina Vega, and that's next time on The Takeaway from WNYC and PRI.